you have your Bibles, let's open up to Hebrews chapter 4. So we are back into our rhythm with the book of Hebrews. And as we move into the new year, I think it's, I think it's always helpful to think in terms of, you know, if, if God is light and in him there is no darkness, and if God is life, he is the living God, to look back on this year and to ask ourselves, you know, where did I experience life? What are some things that have given me life from this last year? Because as I think about going into the next year, I want more of that. I want life and I want light. To also think about what are some things that just kind of gave me light, that gave me clarity, that illumined things that maybe were dark. And I do think that this idea of looking back at what has brought me life, what's enlivened me, what has given me joy, I want, yes, please, right? And what is illumined? Like, yeah, I want more of that. But there's also things that we think about, how have I, how have I been walking through this world? What's my posture been in this world? What has my posture been like in this world in this last year? And how has that helped me? Has it hurt me? Like, what are some of those things? It's always a good chance to reflect. And so as we enter into this passage, this very familiar passage from Hebrews 4, I want to do a little bit of both of these things. So Hebrews 4, 12, I'm going to read this to you this familiar passage for those who've been walking in faith for some time, this idea that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so as we finish out 2023 and as we move into 2024, I'm always a little bit cautious. Now, I remember before we get, I'm always a little cautious now at New Year's about celebrating the next year. I remember I was so pumped about 2020. Do you guys remember? Like 2020 in January, it's like, it's 2020. It's super symmetrical. And like, this is going to be a great year. It's an even year. It's going to be so great. And then all of a sudden, then it was like COVID, presidential election. I was just like, you know, dogs and cats living together. Like it was crazy. Okay. So anyway, I'm always a little like, I'm like, I'm looking forward, cautiously optimistic to 2024. Anybody with me on this? All right, all right. Optimistic, but caution, like caution, right? Okay. So anyway, I I suppose as we go into this, to think about this idea of this this very familiar passage, and I just want to start us out, I want us to think about going into this new year about the Word of God. And as we're at this point in the book of Hebrews, we've come out of these very severe warnings to these people that are under pressure. They're under pressure on this journey. They're being called to this journey into rest. Just like the nation of Israel was called from from coming out of Egypt into the promised land, um, they're called into the rest of the land. And yet they decided, they got to the edge of the promised land in the 12 spies episode and said, we want to go back. And God said, watch out, because maybe if you do this, this might not turn out well for you. They're like, yeah, we're done. Kill Moses, kill Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, all the voices of faith. Let's just kill them, and we'll go back. And God says, no, no, okay, no, 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 no. I have something to say. We're not going to do that. And so they, this, this, this very severe episode in the nation of Israel, the author of Hebrews in chapter 3 and 4 recounts it as he reads out Psalm 95, the word of God. And he reads this out, and there's this very severe warning. They're on this journey. And we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, there's three journeys. The journey into rest, 
the journey into the Holy of Holies, and the journey into the city of God. Three movements in the book of Hebrews. We're just finishing the first movement into rest. And at the end of this movement into rest, he's like, hey, the word of God is living and active, and it's sharp. And I just, I just pierced you with Psalm 95. There's more to come. And so one of the things I want to ask as we go into this next year is simply to ask the question, like, what is the Word of God and what does this passage mean? How many people have this passage, this, this verse memorized? You did the Navigator's memory verse thing. There you go, John Adams, of course. Like, the whole Bible's memorized by John Adams. Um, see, these are funny jokes, guys. I know it's been a long week. I know everybody's been napping a lot. But we're here together Okay, but if you, this, this is a very familiar passage to us, and sometimes I think that when we think about the Word of God, um, the Word of God, that when I say Word of God, what do you think of? You think of the Bible, right? And I think we as Protestants, as evangelical Protestants, we kind of equate the, the Word of God with the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, and that's true. The Bible is the Word of God. But when, we, when the author of Hebrews is writing this, the Bible as we know it does not exist. The New Testament does not exist. The book of Hebrews barely existed. And so one of the things we have to ask is like, and one of the, the cardinal rules of interpretation, whenever we come to a passage of Scripture, is we want to understand what is the author's intended meaning. What is the author trying to say? And so when the, and, and we have seminarians who are like, yes, I hear that. And yes, we'll pound that into you author's intended meaning. In other words, the, the Bible cannot say what it was not intended to say. It's kind of an interesting concept. Sometimes, I, I mean, the, the word is alive and it is living, but when we ask the question, when the author of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, what is he talking about? What is the word of God? And so, uh, it, 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 there's a few things. Uh, the word of God in Hebrews, I'll say this, just as a starting point. The word of God in the book of Hebrews, means the things that God has spoken. Okay, the word of God is what has been spoken by God. And it's likely referring to three things. Three things that the word of God is according to the book of Hebrews. Now look, the Bible is the word of God, everybody. I'm not going to change that, right? But I, we do want to understand what is he talking about here. So what we need to do is we look back in the book of Hebrews and ask the question, when has God spoken? When has God spoken? And the very first thing, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews says this, long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And the very first thing when the author of Hebrews is talking about the word of God, the things that are spoken by God, the preeminent thing in the entire book of Hebrews, the preeminent thing that is the word of God spoken by God is the son of God, Jesus. Jesus is a spoken revelation of who God is. God has spoken. In the past, he spoke through the prophets, yes. But in these last days, he has spoken in his son. And the whole book of Hebrews 
is going to be about this idea that we see on the board, on the, on the screen, that Jesus is greater. He is the ultimate, greatest revelation of who God is. God can speak out who he is, but the best way for God to reveal himself that God knows is that sending his son is going to be the ultimate, greatest word of God that is ever going to be. What, we, what scholars will call the Jesus event that Jesus was incarnate, born. I don't know if you guys heard, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, anybody? Okay, thank you. I, yeah, okay. Okay, angels and everything like that. Jesus was born, he was incarnate, and then he grew, he lived his life. He had certain sensibilities. There were things that he got angry at. There were, things, there were people he had compassion on. There were things that upset him. There were things that made him happy, right? And in this, Jesus is understood, especially by the author of Hebrews, that Jesus is the revelation of who God is. He is the word of God. Now, Hebrews isn't saying the exact same thing that the gospel of John is saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's very similar. Jesus is the spoken word of God. When God speaks, it's powerful. And the revelation of Jesus, the Jesus event, was such a thing that if you were present at Jesus doing his ministry teaching, you would have learned something about God, not just information about God, but the way God felt about this world, the way God felt about people. There was something that the 12 disciples and those who gathered around Jesus during his earthly ministry, they saw something of who God is that we might not have access to because they were eyewitnesses of the event. And it's something to me that, it, I, I think it, to me, it, it like motivates me to, to look at God's word and to say, like, what must that have been like? Like, what else is there about Jesus that we can get, that we can mine out of these scriptures? So the Jesus event is the first and foremost word of God in the book of Hebrews. So, that's the first thing. But the second thing that I've alluded to, and that he, the author actually says, is also that the message of the scriptures in the past was also the word of God. Look at 1-1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God's speaking the word of God, the things that are spoken by God. Most recently, the ultimate is Jesus. But in the past, he's also said many things. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to use those previous scriptures, the word of God that has been spoken in the past, and he's going to make his case that Jesus is the greatest and ultimate word of God. So far in the book, we're only four chapters in, the author of Hebrews has already made use of the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. 17 times he's quoted from the Old Testament from nine passages so this is only, we're only four chapters in. He's already used nine different passages from the Old Testament, and he's cited them 17 times. Okay? The message of Scripture from the past is also the Word of God. Jesus is the ultimate communication of God. God has spoken in his Word, the Word Scriptures, from the past. So he's made his point about Jesus that way. Now the third thing, the third word of God, and I think this is, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's implied, but there are times where God takes his scriptures from the past, 
lived experience and someone communicating them, and it lands with weight, like the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is what is called a word of exhortation, but it's a, it's a, it's a spoken communication to God's people, but it's somehow he uses the scriptures of the past, the power of the Spirit, and the words land in such a way that it is felt with the weight of the Word of God. That It's not just other words, but it lands with that kind of weight. And the author of Hebrews is going to talk about that, like, like Caleb when he warns, like, hey, we should go in, we should go in. That was the Word of God in that moment. God had spoken in the past, there was this lived experience, but the Spirit moves in this one man, we should go in. And I think the author of Hebrews sees himself as kind of a type of Caleb, that he in this very important moment is stepping up, using the scriptures of the past, and God with his spirit-bearing witness is going to land these words in the hearts of people. And I think we've all experienced that at times. You might be reading through a passage or something like that, but somebody says it, and it lands on you in a certain way that it hadn't landed on you before in the past. And the author of Hebrews is going to say, hey, that's, that's another way that we might think about the Word of God. Is the Bible the Word of God? Yes. But there are times when God's Spirit couples with God's Scriptures, and it lands in a particular moment, in a particular way. That is God's Word. God is guiding, speaking, moving in that moment. All right, so um, God is giving a word, a message, or guidance to his people. So those three things, the Jesus event, the scriptures of the past, as well as God doing something in the moment, and those are all understood in the book of Hebrews as the word of God, the things that God is speaking. Now, what does it say about this kind of word of God? What, what, how would you describe this word of God? And he says this, that the word of God is living and active. So the word spoken by God, whether in the past or right now, has the same qualities of God himself. God is alive. And so what he says is living. Living, actually living, the word living, if you were to read this in Greek, the word living is the emphatic first word of the sentence. Living is the word of God and active. Living. This is alive. God's word is alive. The fact that the word of God is living means, and I think this is important for us to understand, when God speaks something, and he means something, and he says something, it does not die. It does not have a shelf life. It does not stale. It's not like the Christmas leftovers that you're like, do we keep it for any longer? Like, you know, it's like it's been five days in the fridge. What should we do with the ham, right? You guys know, like, God's word does not have an expiration date. It doesn't have a shelf life. It is living. It is alive. When God created the world, so here's another time that God speaks. Genesis 1-2. So in the, beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. So um, God said, let there be light. Look, whether if you're a young earther, that's like 26,000 years ago. If you're an old earther, that's 4.3 billion years old, okay? 
one way or another, is there still light? Okay, that's, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I was expecting a positive answer. Thank you, Steve. God's spoken word has not diminished. It's not like, hey, the light is dimming or anything like that. The light is as strong today as it was when God first said, let there be light. It is his word is alive and effective. God says, let there be land, let there be living things. Like his word, like you think about this, when God created, he just did it by saying it. The power of God's spoken word, the word of God is living and it's active. The word active implies that the word of God, the God's spoken word is effective. That it accomplishes stuff. I love to accomplish stuff. This week, I have not accomplished any stuff. It's been like down, like watching TV, like putting stuff away, going to basketball. I haven't accomplished anything. But the word of God is working. It works, even in our rest. I mean, isn't that the beauty of the Sabbath, that we can take a rest and know that God is still at work? His word is powerful, it's alive, and it is at work. Now, what does it do? What does it do? Look at 4.12. Hebrews compares the word spoken by God to a sword. 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, Joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now the word, okay, a little, you're getting a little bit of Greek here. The word for sword is the word machaira. Roman soldiers, they used a machaira. It was about a cubit long, so elbow to um, fingertips is about the size of a machaira. And it was, um, it was different than a long broadsword. Like a broadsword, you wield it, you know, like this. But a machaira, you stood still and you could thrust. It was a very, it was very nimble sword. This is why the Romans used it. And the machaira had two, two-edged blade, as opposed to other, like more Middle Eastern or Persian swords that only had one blade. They were curved with one blade. The Roman soldiers, they had the machaira, which was a double-sided sword. And he says, look, the word of God is like a machaira. Not like a big broadsword, but a nimble, shorter sword. And it has kind of a cutting and penetrating property. It's not a long, a long board, uh, broad sword, which in, um, in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. That's, that is not a machaira. It's what's called a rampaira. And it's, it's like a, it's an executioner's sword. It's a big, heavy sword. Zhunk, right? But a machaira is a fighting sword. The word of God is elsewhere likened to a sword in Ephesians. Paul names it as the only weapon of offense, the only offensive weapon among the armor of God in Hebrews chapter 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the, the, word, the, the author could have simply said, the word of God is sharper than any machaira, because a machaira was double-edged. And he could have simply said that. But the author wants to make it clear that this sword 
has two blades. It's a double-bladed sword. And this is important because even the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Revelation has, is double-bladed. And that is this. Why does it have two blades? Because it has two blades because each side of the sword does different things. The sword can be a sword of protection. In other words, that sword can be a comfort to us. That sword can tell us who we are and can protect us. That sword can build us up. It can provide the safety that we need in order to grow and form as people. That sword can be protective. It can be encouraging. But that sword can also cut. It can cut deep. It can be painful. It can convict. I think a good way to think about this is there are times when the, God, the word of God comforts us and there are times when the word of God confronts us. And I think as people of faith, we will all experience both sides of that sword in our life of faith at various times. We will experience that sword, the word of God, as a comfort to us. It will protect us. It will form us. It will allow us to be who we are grow into who we are, into the likeness of Christ, but it will also convict us. It will penetrate into us and say, look, what you're doing is not right. Like for all, your, for all the things that are going well, you've got serious dysfunction, Craig. You've got to work on that. You gotta, there's stuff you've got to work on. And until the day that I die, I would expect that God's word is going to convict me and comfort me. It's going to do both. And as we think about that, it is because it is a two-edged sword. And the author wants to make it clear. That, and, and when we look at the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to use that sword in both of those ways. And he's just come off a unit where he's like, look, these people disobeyed and they didn't make it. Shung! It's like, you know, it's like, I don't, does that make, that's more like an arrow hitting. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, sound effects are not my thing, but... That, that's kind of, but like it comes, it comes fast and it comes hard and you're like, like the, the word of God has really cut to the quick. But the author of Hebrews is not simply going to leave the word of God as this sharp sword that is lopping off limbs. He's going to use it to remind them that Jesus has been made like us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And he's going to quote passages from the Old Testament that are going to remind us that he is seated on a throne, that he is the king of the universe, and that we have been invited to share, to come on his coattails into the holy place. Both of those edges are at work in the book of Hebrews. It's so sharp, it divides things that cannot be divided. Soul and spirit, in verse 12. In the ancient world, like we might think today, like, oh, there's a difference between the soul and the spirit. In the ancient world, those just were interchangeable synonyms. But the word of God, it can divide it. We can't, we don't, like, you tell me the difference between the soul and the spirit. First of all, we can't see them, but the word of God can not only see them, but divide them well and correctly. Joints and marrow. Where, where does your joint 
and your bone and the ligaments that form your joints, where does that begin and end? I mean, we could lop it off, but it ceases to be a joint at that point. But the Word of God knows it. The Word of God sees it. The Word of God can divide those things correctly. What's the difference between your thoughts and your intentions? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. What, is, what are the differences between your thoughts and your intentions? Your thoughts and intentions are indivisible in our minds. It's whatever's going on up here. But God and his word, they can separate those things out. And the, the importance here is not to say, well, what is a thought? What's the difference between a thought and an intention? The point is, look, we can't see any of these things. You can't see, like... It's not like we have an, you don't have an MRI in your eyes and you can see, oh, there's the ligament and there's, like you can't see inside. You can't see inside someone else's brain. You can't see someone's soul or spirit. But God can and God's word can and can divide that well. The whole point is that this sword is so sharp, it sees what is unseeable and it makes sense out of what does not, cannot be made sense of. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the things that are indivisible. Here's a little aside here. Because the Bible is the word of God. Okay? It's what, the Jesus event is one thing. God revealing himself in scripture is the word of God. And I would just say this. The word of God is sharp. And this is a reminder to us this is probably why teachers in the New Testament and the Old Testament are admonished and encouraged to handle the Word of God well. That it takes some training. Like, you think about someone, if you just handed someone a sword and, and they were like, hack, hack, hack. Like, you could do some damage if you don't use the sword well. And I would argue that in our culture, even in our evangelical culture, there are people who will use the, the word of God as a weapon against God's people. There's a reason why teachers are encouraged to be able to handle the word of God well. And that's, just not, that's not just about knowing the things in God's word. Like, I think that's important. I feel like in my own life, when I think about my call to ministry, in a lot of ways it was a call to the Bible. And there were times where I kind of thought that the, my call to the Bible was like being really good at Bible trivia. Right? Like, and we might know people like this. Like, they know everything there is to know about the Bible. But the, the call to handle God's Word is not just the call to handle the Bible. The call to handle God's Word is also to be able to handle the Jesus event too. To embody the sensibilities of Jesus as they wield the sword of conviction and comfort and when to apply it to what situation. If you're just coming down with the hacking edge of the sword every time you open God's word, there's a good chance you're not seeing a whole side of the other edge of the sword that is supposed to comfort, that is supposed to bring peace and protection and compassion. And at the other, on the other side, if you're only seeing peace and you're never confronted when you read God's word, there's a good chance you're missing a whole side of God's word. 
that is about making you more like Jesus because you're not like Jesus. I'm not like Jesus yet. I want to grow more and more like Jesus every day. I would expect that the word of God would confront me on a daily basis. But I would also expect that it's going to comfort me as well. And no one was able to do that better than Jesus. To have compassion on someone, but also expect transformation in that person. Because he could handle the word of God. And God needs his people to know how to handle a two-edged sword in the posture that Jesus would handle it. Look, I, we could go on, I could go on and on about this, but this is, this is important to recognize. This is, not, this is not a dull blade that you just hand to somebody and let them wield it around. This is why people get trained as pastors. As, I have a lot to learn as a pastor, even as a, a, a scholar. Like, I have a lot to learn, but my, I want to handle it, not just to know the facts about it, but I want to handle it like Jesus would handle it. And I would say this, learning to handle it like Jesus would handle it is a lot harder than just learning the facts about it. So God have mercy on us. We want to, we want to be a, a community that embodies both sides of that, where, we're, where iron sharpens iron. But also, we have compassion on those who need compassion. And sometimes that compassion just needs to be directed at ourselves just to look at our past failures and just look at your past failures with some compassion. <laughs> we'll let God handle the transformation. God will take care of it. And this is why we do our best and we hand ourselves over to Jesus. Jesus, search me and know me. Make me more like you. All right. You guys with me on this? Like, I just, this is hard. I think this is just, how do we thread that needle I spent a lot of time in my own Christian life just with a lot of conviction, right? A lot, a lot of confrontation in God's word. And, you know, that critical voice does hard work. And sometimes it can leave a little bitterness, right? We need to be embraced by the Father as much as we need to be transformed by that same Father. All right, okay, there we go. All right, this, this passage continues on. Um, the word of God is not the only word in this passage. If you look at the last word in 4.13, it is the word account. 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word account there is the same term that is used for the word of God. The word of God is also the word of account. And so God has given a word. We must also give a word to God. I know some of you guys are looking at me like, that's weird. No, it's the same word, logos, the logos of God, and we have to provide a logos to God. And most translations translate that as to give an account. Um, it says, all are naked and expose the eyes of him to whom we must give a word. God gives a word, we give a word. Um, only the, the common English Bible call, says we must give an answer to God. And the point here is that God has something to say to us. He speaks something to us. 
And we have something to respond to him with. When he sees, when he looks, because this is what it says, I mean, look, we, we said the word naked in here a few times already today, that, we're, that the word of God will see us naked before him. Totally exposed to God. The word of God will cut that deep as to leave us completely bare and exposed before God. There will be no thought or intention hidden from the eyes of God. And this, you know, look, there's a, there's a passage in the book of Matthew that talks about the things that are done in secret will be announced from the, the rooftop. These will scare the, you know, whatever out of me. It's like, is this what's going to happen at the end of all time? I'm like, all my full, all the things that I've ever done wrong, is that just going to be yelled from the rooftops? Like, when everything's over, am I just going to stand before God and everybody's going to see all the crap, all the things that I've struggled with over the years, all the things? Is that what this is saying? And I think this is important. Because we, our Bibles, at verse 13, usually have a break. Does anybody have a Bible where there's a break and there's a new heading underneath that? Look, that's wrong, everybody. That, that's not part of Scripture. Those breaks, those headings, they're artificial breaks, okay? And there's a reason why. Because what follows is just as important because the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It judges between the thoughts and intentions and the bones and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. And it makes everybody laid bare before God. That's not where the author of Hebrews wants to leave his audience. Keep reading. Keep reading. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast to our word, our confession. What is our word? What is the word that we have? When we stand before him with, with no, we have no excuses. We'll be laid bare before him, but we will have a confession of faith. And the author of Hebrews says, look, when you are laid bare before God and his word cuts you open and you are laid bare, this is the word you have for him. Your confession of faith in Jesus. Your foibles, your failures, your shame is not going to be broadcast to the world. You will have the confession of faith. Look at what it says in 4.15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In every respect, he's been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen to where we go. Let us then, with confidence, have our sins broadcast before the world. No, that's not what it says. Let us then with confidence draw near, not the seat of judgment, but to where? To the throne of grace. And what we find at the throne of grace, if we have a confession, I believe in Jesus, I put my trust in Jesus, I put my faith in Jesus, I entrust my life to Jesus, that is my confession. I'm going to hold on to that because I have to provide a word to the one who will lay me bare. My confession, I believe in Jesus and what will happen? I will not come to a seat of judgment. I will come to a throne of grace and what will I find there? I will find mercy and I will find grace to help in time of need. Look, there will be a day 
where Jesus will come back and he will make all things right. And some will like it and some will not like it. And it will go well for some and it will not go well for others. And the dividing line between, he will separate, he will divide. Now, right now we're in a time where God is patient and compassionate and calling people to faith and calling people to a confession of faith. But there will be a day where it's over. And we will have to provide a word to him. And the author of Hebrews says, look, some people will not have a word to provide. But you hold on to your confession of faith. You hold on to Jesus. Why should you be there? Why should you be before the throne of grace? Because Jesus has made a way and I've put my trust in him and have entrusted my life to him. That's faith. That's the gospel. There will be a day where there is, like, there will be a day where people will not put any trust in anyone but themselves and will not put themselves under anyone else's authority but their own authority. And on the day of judgment, they will have to provide a word. And the word of God will cut to the quick, and they will be asked, what word do you give? I'm pretty awesome. Like, that's not going to get it done. Hold on to your confession of faith. Because you don't want to come to a seat of judgment. You want to come to a throne of grace. And what makes the difference in that is Jesus. Jesus is greater. He's greater than any other mediator that has come before, any other mediator that will ever come Jesus is greater. He is the linchpin of salvation. And as we go into 2024, as we think about this, I, look, for me, I think it's always a good time. I, whether you're a resolution person or not, I do like, I like goals. I'm kind of a goal-oriented person. I like, I like to move in a direction. I like progress. Like, that's kind of my makeup. I don't know. Maybe sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's, like, that, that's a little hard to be around. I get it. You guys are okay. Um, even if you ever say that, that's fine. I understand that, Right? Like sometimes you can just have, you got to have your foot on the gas all the time. You got to take it off. Okay, but the whole point, what is, I can't even think of what, why I'm even saying this. Thank you, Brenda. Yeah, the, but, but the point is, um, <laughs> there you go. 2024, oh, thank you. Coming to the beginning of the year, I'm like, I was on a roll and now I'm like way off. So just hang with me. Um, the whole point is that there are just times in the year that are natural points where you just re-up. Like maybe you said, look, I believe in Jesus. And you're like, look, Pastor Craig, I got it taken care of. Like, I, I love Jesus. And look, I believe that. I totally believe that. There are times where we just freshly say, hey, I just want to make it clear as we go into the new year, I am entrusting my life to Jesus I know I did it when I was four years old. I do. I do it when I did it when I was twelve. For me, I did it when I was fourteen years old. But there have been other times, important times along the way, where I'm just like, I'm re-upping. I'm ready for another tour. I love Jesus, and I'm coming in. I'm coming into 2024. And I, if there's one thing I want, I want Jesus, and I want to learn to be more like Him. Amen to that. That. It's, there's no shame in doing that. And sometimes there's also a, a little realization like, hey, maybe like I've been coming here and I'm around.
simply just said, out myself. Trust my life. Jesus, I want to ask to come to my life. Like, that, that happens too. That happens all the time. For me, it was when I, like I said, when I was 14 years old, I was just like, I want Jesus in. Whatever that means, I want him in, and I want him in control, and I want to give my life to him. Look, I, didn't, I don't think I could have explained it at the time, but what I was doing was I was exercising faith in Jesus. However you want to say that, whether it, like, some people talk about asking Jesus into their heart, some people talk about putting their faith in Jesus, whatever it is, that's, I want to come to the throne of grace with Jesus, and I want to entrust myself to him. Look, that's a great way to start 2024. 